0: Welcome to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. Ben is a features editor at CoinDesk. He's a seasoned business journalist, and he'll be talking with some of the most fascinating contributors to CoinDesk daily opinion section. Ben is joined by two CoinDesk reporters, co-host Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson. This episode is sponsored by PumaPay. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, Ben, Anna, and Danny.
1: Hi, welcome to Opinionated. I'm Ben Schiller with co-hosts Anna Bedakova and Danny Nelson. How are you guys?
2: Hello, Ben.
1: Good, good. Today, we're going to discuss a really hot topic uh, in crypto, which is the electricity use and climate impact of cryptocurrencies, which are known for being particularly energy intensive, particularly Bitcoin. And of all the sort of controversies in crypto, and there are many, this debate might be the most contentious and confusing. So we're going to try and cut through some of that noise and that misinformation by bringing in someone who actually knows what they're talking about. And that is Jonathan Kumi, who is an expert in the environmental impact of IT and has written extensively on this topic, including a report for Coin Center, the uh, DC think tank, which was entitled Estimating Bitcoin's Electricity Use, a Beginner's Guide, which is a mercifully clear-eyed look at this topic, uh, highly recommended. Anna is going to lead the discussion today, so uh, take it away, Anna.
2: Thank you, Ben. Uh, and thank you, Jonathan, for joining us. Indeed, probably the Bitcoin electricity use and environmental impact is one of the hottest debates around crypto now, hottest in many senses. And you've written a lot about that. You've written some scientific papers, you did analyze other people's research on that. Can you just briefly tell us about your academic and research career and how you came to study things related to Bitcoin?
3: So thank you very much for having me as a guest. I've been studying information technology and its environmental impacts for about 30 years. And I started first looking at the Energy Star program for computers that was created by the Environmental Protection Agency in the early 1990s and over time did analyses of total electricity used by computing. So, uh, not just things like cryptocurrency but also fax machines and, you know, in the olden days and Uh, printers and computers and laptops and so on. Around about 2000 or so, that was the first tech boom. And there were a couple of guys running around talking about how the internet was going to use 50% of all electricity in 10 years and uh, how data centers use 300 watts per square foot and how IT was causing the California electricity crisis. And this all turned out to be nonsense. But it took years of research to show that. And it was great research. I mean, it actually was great fun to do this, and it led to good empirical work. But I didn't realize that the same people would keep talking. Other people would keep saying similarly wrong things. And this is just an ongoing struggle. The people who do the careful research are always lagging the people who are making stuff up because it's much easier and quicker to make stuff up than it is to actually get the numbers right. My goal is to get the numbers right. And that sometimes makes people angry, but that's my goal as a researcher.
2: Right. But how did Bitcoin happen to you?
3: It's funny how you say it that way. It's like it's being imposed on me, right? Well, I became interested because many people were concerned about the electricity use. Of Bitcoin. And for those who uh, have delved into it, they know that the proof of work algorithm is very electricity intensive. It's designed to be hard to solve the puzzles that allow people to create and mine a Bitcoin. And so it's a feature of the system. And there are reasons why that system was created in that way. But my feeling is that we, we need to understand what benefits may come from this particular system and then weigh that against the electricity use and perhaps other costs associated with that system. And then people need to come to some sort of societal decision about that. And I, I don't take a public position on whether Bitcoin is worth it because I'm interested in understanding the electricity use. Other people can have that argument. So but that's why we're here is to talk about the, the subtleties of electricity used by Bitcoin. And when it started becoming a hot topic, many people came to me and said, what's going on here? Is this really true that it's using all this electricity? And that, that's one of the reasons why the Coin Center folks came to me, because I had studied this topic for a long time. You know, No constraint on what I study, they just said, please write us a, an objective picture of electricity used by Bitcoin. And that's the, the study that we talked about earlier in the session here.
4: So, within your jam, uh, and you're looking at this as much as you can from an objective standpoint, and trying to figure out what the real impact is, on a, the public debate level, are you seeing the same types of arguments that are being thrown bombastically perhaps at Bitcoin that you did see in earlier tech trends that you've studied? Or is the rhetoric around this specific technology somehow different from the other ones that you've studied before?
3: I don't think it's very different. I think there are people who are against Bitcoin who want to use high electricity use as a cudgel against Bitcoin. And I think there are people who have an interest in minimizing the impact of it. There have been even uh, studies from, uh, in the academic literature that have vastly exaggerated The possibilities for Bitcoin electricity use. And we did a debunking of one very prominent version of that sort of exaggeration back in 2019. But what's perhaps not surprising, and it is similar to my experience with debunking other incorrect statements about ICT electricity use, is that that debunked study keeps getting cited. It's a study that came out in 2018 and it claimed that Bitcoin alone would. Blow through the 2C warming limit without any other growth in any other emissions. And there are many reasons why that study is wrong. And the frustrating thing, of course, is we and several other research groups explained why it was wrong. We published our rebuttals and people keep citing the work. And it's just, it's incredibly frustrating because, you know, there's no, in science, there's no validity authority, right? There's nobody who can come in and say, You're invalid. You're doing something that's invalid. And so the best you can do is you you do your research and you explain why the other people are wrong. And if they choose to keep making the same incorrect claims, there's not much you can do about it.
4: You got to get them to use Google Scholar instead of Google. (laughs)
2: So, what are the most reliable sources of information, of data, that you think should be used now to talk about Bitcoin electricity use? For example, Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, they are tracking the numbers regarding Bitcoin mining. We have a very famous uh, website, DigEconomist, that also is publishing some numbers. Can you just give a couple examples? Of what would you look at? when you wanna evaluate what's going on with uh, Bitcoin electricity consumption?
3: When we look at these calculations of electricity consumption, the first thing we always look for is transparency and reproducibility of results. So can someone from outside look at what's been done to calculate these numbers and then to reproduce that calculation themselves in a way that satisfies them that it is what it says it is. And so that's the first and i think most important criterion. You want the calculations to reflect the reality of the technical system that's being evaluated and you want to make sure that you know whatever calculations are being done are are done correctly and the source that i use and point to nowadays is that Cambridge uh, Bitcoin Electricity Index and they they do a pretty careful job of being transparent and showing their calculations and responding to criticisms you know they they change their methods when somebody says oh that's not right so i think that's the most credible source and that's what i always point people to so that's where i would start they give three estimates. Every day, they update. Every 24 hours, they update. They give a best estimate, they give a low theoretical estimate, and they give a high theoretical estimate. It's a standard practice in estimating scientific or engineering parameters is you give a kind of range, like low to high, give an uncertainty range. But the uncertainty range is a factor of 10. So the high estimate is 10 times bigger than the low estimate. And that tells you that we don't understand this system particularly well. When you have that kind of an uncertainty range, there's a lot of possible things that we don't know. And so it's important, you know, yes, the Cambridge uh, folks are doing I think the best work on this, but it's also important to understand that we don't understand the system terribly well and there's a lot of uncertainty in these kinds of estimates.
0: Afraid of missing out on the latest crypto opportunities? Well, then it's time to head on over to Pumapay.io. Pumapay's first liquidity pool is now live on PancakeSwap. Deposit liquidity today and claim your share of a 750 million PMA token reward. Hurry now. Visit Pumapay.io today. That's Pumapay.io.
1: The power system itself is a balance between uh, supply and demand. And as I understand it, not being an energy expert, uh, a lot of that energy that's produced is not actually consumed as it's produced. And I think people who want to green the Bitcoin network talk about using that excess power as if it's kind of free energy. When you talk about like 0.4% of electricity being used for Bitcoin, how much of that is electricity that would be used for another purpose and how much of it is actually excess energy that wouldn't be used otherwise
3: there's very little excess energy in the power system it's almost all consumption and production that happens more or less simultaneously. there are some places with storage that's growing very rapidly there are some places that have so many renewables that at times of some times of day there's more power generated than people can use but that's only a small fraction. If you look, the California system operate, independent system operator reports, uh, I think they call it excess energy. I'm not sure what the current term is, but it's, it's energy that has been spilled. So solar power in the spring and fall afternoons, there's so much of it that they can't use it all. And then they, they talk to the power generators and say, please stop that. But that's only a tiny fraction of the year. And so I think one of the concerns I have with the advocates for Bitcoin is that they're making claims about using this excess energy when, in fact, excess energy is pretty small, single-digit percent of the totals in California, where the, and that's a case where they've done a lot of renewables, and not every place has done a lot of renewables yet. So I think that it's there probably is some of that excess energy, but it's not a significant fraction of... The electricity being used to to create Bitcoin. But do
1: you think there is potential going forward as we use more renewable energy and there is that excess uh, you know solar and wind, etc., to green Bitcoin in that way?
3: I'm not sure that that's something to count on. And the reason why I'm not sure is because there has never been a free energy source that has gone unused. So there's going to be technology that people develop to tap that free energy or cheap, you know, negative cost energy. They're going to build more storage. They're going to figure out better ways to operate the system. They're going to put in a lot more transmission. Uh, They're going to operate, you know, in a coordinated fashion between region A and region B. And so I see that as kind of a transient situation. It's not a something that anyone in particular can count on. And certainly Bitcoin itself can't lay claim to that electricity because other people are also going to try to lay claim to that electricity. I just don't see it as a, a primary driver of environmental impact. And I see that also that, you know, Bitcoin, just like most data centers, they try to run as much as they can, the miners. And so if you're trying to run as much as they can, you have to keep going regardless of what's happening in the power system, because the, the primary driver is the price of the cryptocurrency. right? The price is high enough that I'm willing to put in more ASICs and do more mining. And so that, to me, is the primary driver. And the electricity costs are not trivial. They're a significant fraction of the costs. But if the price is high enough, I don't care. I'm going to keep mining. And the more I use my capital equipment, of course, the more Uh, value I can generate from that capital equipment, and that allows me to amortize the capital costs over more value generation. There's a capital cost argument here. It's not just about energy costs. It's that they're investing in these ASICs. They want to get as much out of them as possible, and energy is one factor in that calculus. It's an important factor, but it's not the only factor.
2: How do we know that this excess, quote-unquote, energy, is uh, is a tiny fraction of, of the entire generation. Uh, are there other ways well, to, to well, check that? Well, you can that? go
3: to the well. So you can go to the California Independent System Operator. Then that's the institution who's responsible for running the California power system, and they give data on spilled energy, on energy that has been kind of shunted aside and not used. And it's a tiny fraction, you know, single digit percent in any particular time period. That's the data that I'm familiar with. You know, different places, there might be different results, but uh, California is definitely a leader in this area and the data are out there for anyone to look at.
4: Now, on the other side of that argument, is there any truth to the notion that I've actually heard this from a friend of mine who works for a power utility company? So I'm inclined to believe him because he doesn't really have a stake in the whole Bitcoin argument, but he says that the excess demand or the the demand for more electricity that is caused when you bring all these mining units online could actually help speed up uh, the utility companies push toward renewables because they need to find a way to meet all of the this extra demand. Have you heard that argument before and is there any um, truth to that way of thinking and approaching this?
3: I've heard that argument. I don't really buy it, and I don't know that, that Bitcoin itself is any more of an incentive than any other increase in demand. The, in some places, there are still people trying to build coal plants and certainly people trying to build gas plants. So the question of what they do next, so let's say there's an increase in demand, which power plant they build it doesn't have to be renewables. Mm-hmm. Uh, the economics are pretty good now, actually, renewables plus storage tend to be competitive even with gas plants nowadays. But there are many institutional factors pushing people towards more conventional investments in the supply side in a lot of parts of the world. So it's not necessarily true that an increase in demand will necessarily lead to an increase in renewables. I think that because of the, the rapidly improving economics of renewables, you know, more and more people will be using those as the incremental source of power, but it's not guaranteed. I'm a little leery of that argument because I don't see, it, it seems to me a convenient argument that doesn't have a whole lot of empirical support and I don't think that it's likely to be, you know, may happen in some places, but I just don't think it's going to be the predominant force.
2: Talking about renewables and convenient arguments, I often hear from the miners that The cheapest electricity available now is hydropower, in fact, in in many places, and when we talk about hydropower, uh, the dams are often located in the place where there is not many cities around them, not many people using the electricity, and that transmitting that electricity to other places is kind of costly, you can lose energy, so it makes a lot of economic sense to build mining facilities around those hydropower dams so that they use this clean hydro energy, which otherwise might not be used, can be like wasted or just stay idle. What do you make out of that argument?
3: In the early days of the data center industry, there were many uh, big operators who preferentially located their data centers near hydropower. There are precedents for that, but there's a limited amount of hydropower. It's not an unlimited expandable resource. It, it is what it is. You know it, it's there's a certain amount, and so if you use it for one use, you don't use it for another. So the question is, who's contracted with that dam? And are there existing contracts? How do you know that that power that you're using, even if you're located by the dam, is actually the hydropower, because there's definitely transmission into and out of most of these places. So I think it's again, it's a kind of convenient argument that I'm not sure is generally true, and I worry that you know people are telling themselves these stories that are convenient but not uh, necessarily accurate. Because I, I just don't think that there's a there's not an unlimited source of hydropower, right? It's not infinitely expandable. It's actually pretty much fixed nowadays. And yes, those plants are old, they're existing, they're depreciated, their marginal costs are very low. But just because the marginal costs are low doesn't mean the price to the Bitcoin operator is low. And then there's these questions of, are they actually using the hydropower? And if they're using it, who's not using it? So again, these are system questions about how much emissions happens and taking Renewable energy from one part of the system, if it's not additional renewable energy, you're not necessarily accomplishing anything. And so, one of the things that the big operators, the data center operators, have done is they've made contracts with new uh, renewable facilities. So, they're creating additional renewable energy because they're saying, We'll build a new wind plant, we'll build a new solar plant. And they sign multi year contracts to do that. So, that's additional. That's having a real effect, but just taking existing resources and repurposing them, it's just shuffling things around. I don't think that it has any net impact on emissions at
4: all. The big problems that I keep seeing through this discussion and also just in the debate is the issue that the data showing that the data everyone cites um, is pretty bad is out there. But it obviously isn't really making many inroads, uh, as evidenced by the fact that people still cite the shoddy papers and still are using numbers and arguments that don't really hold any water if you, you know what to look at. So how do we bring the truth of the uncertainty, I guess, to a wider audience to make it a more nuanced debate if we're even able to? Or we just exist now in a place where everyone is able to pick the facts that they want to and, uh, and the, the reality of the situation be damned.
3: Yeah, this is something I've struggled with for a long time because this tendency to exaggerate electricity used by computing is a very widespread phenomenon. And uh, Eric Massinet and I, Eric's at uh, UC Santa Barbara, he and I uh, just wrote a paper that's coming out in Joule, which is a peer reviewed journal next week, that talks about this general tendency towards exaggeration and what we can do about it. The problem is that the incentives for exaggerating are pretty powerful. Because number one, it's easy to make stuff up. Number two, if you make stuff up, you get attention. And so there's this great little maxim that I like to cite called Brandolini's Law. And it basically, you know, summarized for a family audience is You know, it takes 10 times more effort to refute nonsense than it does to create nonsense. And maybe with social media, it's even worse. That's what we're struggling against, is that the people doing credible work take the time to do credible work. And by the time they've done their work and come out with their results, people have moved on to something else. So it's a real struggle. And I would encourage people who are uh, thinking about these issues to just first note that there's a tendency to exaggerate ICT electricity use and then to refer to more credible sources like this Cambridge Bitcoin electricity consumption index to start there and not to be misled by people who have an agenda in some other way and so but you know everyone should just assume that if you see wild and crazy numbers about ICT electricity use almost certainly an exaggeration and that you need to seek out credible sources To help you figure out what the true story is
1: another thing that often happens in this this discussion particularly from the bitcoin side is that bitcoiners like to compare the energy use and climate impact of bitcoin with the established money system do you think those comparisons are valid because it's kind of getting at that kind of more normative question about whether you think bitcoin is a kind of viable or worthwhile experiment
3: this is a great question and what you need to do when you're thinking about this is to define a use case. One of the imprecisions that I see in a lot of these discussions is that people confuse the mining of a Bitcoin, which is a certain kind of transaction, with the transfer of a Bitcoin, which is a different kind of transaction that has different energy implications. And then they confuse that with a Visa transaction, which is, a, of, you know, that happens you know, trillions of times a year, probably. These are completely separate systems. You need to make sure that when you're doing a comparison of the environmental impact, that you are delivering the same service. And so I would encourage people who want to make that comparison to be very clear. First, don't confuse people who don't understand Bitcoin tend to confuse the mining of the coin with the transfer of the coin. And that's a big, important mistake. There's a huge difference in terms of the, the energy impact. The mining is much more energy intensive.
2: I would disagree actually, because if we talk about the process itself, the transaction is complete when it's written into a block. And new coins emerge also when a new block is written. So basically, I mean, the cost of one new coin is probably not equal to the cost of uh, one transaction in that block. But they are, you know, they emerge as a result of the same process. Like the, the new block is written into the blockchain, new coins emerge and all the transactions in that block.
3: What if I buy a pizza from you and I give you Bitcoin and then the transfer of ownership is captured? And you're saying that the electricity needed to do the transfer and record it is going to be comparable to doing all the computations needed to mine a new Bitcoin. Is that what I hear you saying?
2: Well, I would say that if I sell something for a for Bitcoin to you, I will con- consider the transaction complete and Bitcoin safely reaching me once it's written in a block and a certain amount of confirmation is reached. And once that block is written into the blockchain, new coins also emerge from that process. So, like, I I mean, the miners are doing the same work, right? They're writing that block into the blockchain. And as a result, I have my transaction confirmed and the miners have their coins minted.
3: Okay. Yeah. So this is something that I I don't think I fully understand the distinction you're making. And so this is something that we can delve into more,
0: okay. um,
3: but that's a separate question from whether either of these kind of transactions is equivalent to a Visa transaction. Oh,
0: yeah. And so
3: I see a lot of careless comparisons of those two things when they're not anywhere near equivalent. And so I would encourage anyone who wants to make that comparison to define a use case, a service being delivered, and very carefully. Make sure that the service being delivered on one side of the calculation for Bitcoin is the same, the exact same service being delivered by Visa. Don't compare apples to orangutans, right? It doesn't make sense. And so that's why I get frustrated a little bit because I feel like there's a lot of carelessness in in these kind of comparisons. So just define the service. Make sure it's equivalent service when you're doing a comparison like this
4: so then for the uh, if we're trying to have the equivalent service so we're doing apples to apples instead of apples to oranges would it be that would visa the best thing to do to compare the impact of bitcoin mining to visa be how much energy does visa use as an organization to exist because if we're going to think about you know what is the purpose of bitcoin mining it's to keep the whole system going to an extent and th- and it's, it's different as you're saying from the actual impact of me doing a transaction within Bitcoin with you, and the, if we're comparing the, the Bitcoin transaction to the Visa transaction, well, it's still true that there's this huge energy suck that Bitcoin is causing because of the mining, irrespective of how much the individual transaction is causing. So is there a way to even quantify like how much uh, electricity organizations are using?
3: You can, but I think you have to focus more on what value is being delivered. The value is I get to go to the store and I can quickly buy my groceries, use my watch. I just stick it on there, it goes. Now that system is pretty efficient. They're doing trillions and trillions of transactions and the amount of electricity used per transaction is trivial. So if you're gonna do a comparison like this, let's figure out something equivalent, but I'm not sure that looking at the amount of the total amount of the system is necessarily a comparison because I'm not sure what, again, the service that you're comparing has to be the same. The Bitcoin network and the Visa network are doing two completely separate things as far as I can tell. So I'm not sure that you can compare them in any sort of a sensible way.
1: Thanks very much, Jonathan. I think we need to uh, wrap this up now. Um, Thanks very much for coming on and explaining all these issues that are very, very complicated and we're going to be around for a while still. You can check out Jonathan's work at kumi.com. That's with a K. And we'll post his uh, links on uh, the show page as well. Thank you very much. Thanks to Anna for leading this. And thanks to Danny.
2: Thanks
3: so much for having me.
2: Thank you for the thought-provoking chat, Jonathan.
0: Cheers. See you next time. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Anna Badakova, and Danny Nelson with guest Jonathan Kumi. Today's show is produced, edited, and announced by Michelle Mousseau. With music by Ender. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player.